0: Amen. I hope you have your passage open there in John chapter 2 and there's a structure on the inside of the bulletin if you find that helpful. So let's begin with the basic structure of the passage. There are two parts. Both parts have three smaller segments within them. There's actions, words spoken, and then some kind of remembering or recollection going on. Actions, words spoken, and then a remembering. In the first half there are the actions of Jesus, 14 and 15. Words of Jesus in verse 16 and remembering that goes on in verse 17. The second half also has the actions of verse 18 but this time it's the actions of the Jews questioning Jesus followed by the words of Jesus in dialogue with them uh, from verse 19 to 20 and a comment by the author John, John the Apostle who wrote the gospel and it ends with the disciples recalling, remembering the words of Jesus spoken in uh, verse 22 there. So that's a basic structure repeated. So let's dig into the text and see how we're going. So verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now we'll be celebrating Easter in a few weeks and like the Chinese tomb serving festival, Qingmingjie, the timing of the Easter festival each year is according to the full moon uh, around the end of March and early April, which is, it is at the moment. And that t- at the time of Jesus, there was also a festival that was based around the full moon, the festival of the Passover. It's a bit of an unusual name for a festival, uh, Passover. uh, And we know for those who are familiar with the Old Testament, it was a time to commemorate the night when the Jewish people were rescued from slavery in Egypt. When the angel of death came to bring judgment on the firstborn, the judgment would pass over any household that was protected by the blood of the sacrificed lamb. That was instructed to be painted on the door frames. And in the chaos that ensured the Jewish people were able to use the opportunity to escape from the brutality of slavery in Egypt. So while in Jerusalem for this Passover festival, Jesus goes to the temple, as you do when you're in Jerusalem. And look at what he found in verse 14 there. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now you may recall your Old Testament history. Uh, who built the first temple? Who built the first temple? Anyone? Anyone who built the first temple? It starts with S, is the King? Solomon, yes King Solomon. Who destroyed the first temple? It starts with B, a big country in the north. Uh, the Babylonians destroyed the, com- uh, the temple, uh, the Assyrians came first and then it was the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, as the people were taken into exile. The second temple was built how many years later? Roughly? Less than 100? More than 50? Less than 80? More than 60? About 70 years later but it was expanded. That second temple was built but it wasn't as big and impressive un- as the first one. And then. It was expanded under King Herod who was the ruler of Jesus at, uh, in, during the time of Jesus. And Basically it's made up of five areas. And there was, there was the outer court known as the Court of the Gentiles. Gentile is the Bible's word to describe someone who is not Jewish by race. I, I'm a Gentile and, uh, and if I was living at the time I could go into this outer courtyard but go no further. The Court of Women was next but the women couldn't go no further. The court of Israel, where only ritual, uh, ritually pure Jewish men could go, was next. But only the priests could go further. And the holy place was next, where the priests could go and make sacrifices on the altar on behalf of themselves and the people. But they could go no further. And the final place, in the center, where God's presence was meant, um, a symbol to dwell, the, uh, where God's presence dwelt. Uh, the place was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And the high priest could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But The basic purpose of the temple was to be a tangible reminder of God's presence with his people. But it also gave people an opportunity to approach God through different sacrifices that were made. But to do this they needed cattle, sheep, uh, cattle and sheep for the rich uh, people and doves for the poorer people. And for pilgrims travelling from great distances, it wasn't very practical to BYO, to bring your own when you came to the temple to make sacrifices. It was far more convenient to purchase them on site instead. So these markets performed a useful and necessary role for the functioning of the temple. And The temple tax was also paid and that needed to be done with a, a special temple coinage known as Tyrian coinage. So money changes were needed to help with this exchange at a, at a fee of course. And At one time these merchants were set up outside the temple. The different uh, theories about where they were but in this passage the merchants are now in the temple courts themselves. In the outer court the court of gentiles where most of you and I would be restricted to going it is here we encounter this unexpected scene of Jesus in verse 15. So he made a whip out of cords. And he drove all the people from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money chains. He overturned the tables for those who sold doves. He said, "Get, get, get these out of here. It's all happening. You can imagine the disciples thinking, what's going on here? They're getting ready to do the runner. This is not the Jesus we know. He's gone too far. Isn't he supposed to be the meek and mild lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? He's lost the plot. He's not the Jesus we expect. Jesus' actions were forceful. You can't really drive out cattle and sheep without some kind of whip in some kind, but his actions were not violently cruel on the other hand either. Otherwise, the uproar would have caused the Roman troops, who were stationed in a part of the uh, overlooking the, the temple precinct, and they would have been there in an instant, in, in an instant, with swift reprisals. So he wasn't causing an uproar, but he was making a very big statement. And when I read this, read, used to read this story, I used to think that Jesus was angry at the corruption of the stallholders. Did you notice that in verse fifteen, uh, who he drove from the temple area? Have a look there, verse 15. He drove all from the temple area. In the account of Matthew it says that Jesus drove out both buyers and sellers alike. He wasn't just driving out the sellers. In this account, Jesus' complaint is not about dodgy business practices ripping off the outsider. Jesus says in verse 16, How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Now I'm not sure if you've been to Flemington Markets on a Saturday morning. Anybody been to Flemington Markets on a Saturday morning? It's not exactly a a quiet place to sit in contemplation or anything like that. It's pretty crazy Uh, and it's uh, very chaotic. Especially around the fish area, the seafood section there. It's pretty full on, that end. For Jesus, the hustle and bustle of trade, the mechanics of the crowded temple area, the uproar of buying and selling was so noisy that no one restricted to the court of the Gentiles could easily focus. The people were hindered from coming to God. Part one rounds out with this verse in verse 17. His disciples remembered, remember that it is written, zeal for your house. Will consume me. Now it's not clear when the disciples remembered this text, but it's a quote from Psalm 69, written hundreds of years before. It's about a righteous person suffering, crying out to God because of having to endure opposition. Let me read a part of it for you Psalm 69. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children, for zeal for your house consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me in this psalm the righteous one suffering is suffering the 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 one who's suffering those opposing him failed to be sympathetic to his profound commitment to the temple and what it represented the zeal jesus shows also reflects his profound commitment to what the temple represented jesus wasn't opposing what the temple represented Jesus was clearing the way for genuine, genuine, unhindered worship of God at the place where God had designated at that point in time. But just like the psalmist, that zeal also results in opposition to Jesus, an opposition that unfolds throughout the rest of the gospel. We're only at chapter 2, but it continues to unfold. And when the language of consumed here is used, zeal for your house will consume it he's more than just being consumed in a a psychological sense but it's also in the sense of being destroyed by being completely consumed so Jesus will ultimately be consumed by his death that is related to the second part of this passage but Jesus not only clears away what hinders people from coming to God he clears it away but Jesus also clears the way people to come to God. He clears a way, but he also clears the way. The second point is Jesus clears the way for people to come to God. Not a way, as if there's many ways to God. He clears the way, That there is only one way to God. But there is more action here in verse 18 to 20. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Now at this time in history for the Jewish nation there was an atmosphere of expectation that a Messiah-like figure, an anointed one would appear, a political king of some kind would come and rescue them from the hands of their enemies, their Roman overlords. And So there is this expectation then in Australian culture, we sometimes use the expression, go with your gut. You might be familiar with that, you might be not. It's an unusual one. Go with your gut. You have a gut feeling about something. So you go with your gut to make a decision about something. To go with your gut uh, is another way of saying that you just have a deep sense of something, a deep sense of something, and you make a decision accordingly. Well, the Jews probably had a bit of a gut feeling at this point that Jesus was more than just a troublemaker with an axe to grind. So in going with the gut, they sensed that Jesus was not only right in clearing away their hindrances. I think they didn't say anything about what Jesus actually did because deep down inside they had a gut feeling that Jesus was actually right in clearing away all the hindrances to people worshipping God. But there was something even deeper about him that prompted this intriguing question. They didn't say, why did you move these people out? They asked, what miraculous sign can you show us? It's an interesting response. And as they looked for this long-awaited Messiah figure, it was understood that when he came, he would perform miraculous signs to indicate his authority. And so in harmony with the... Jewish ideas of testing prophets from the Old Testament, they they put Jesus to the test. And as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews demand miraculous science. Greeks look for wisdom. But in trying to test Jesus, it's really Jesus who is testing them. And like John the Baptist in chapter 1, he does that with this cryptic kind of statement, a kind of lateral thinking puzzle, like John the Baptist had. He says this, he, he throws it out there in verse 19. Jesus answered them, "Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Incredulous is a great sounding word. Just the, the sound of it is great. Incredulous. Now I can imagine the ones asking for a sign, choked on their coffee at this point. <laughs> three days, three days. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to raise it in three days? Are you serious? Oh, God. you crazy? Oh, three days. And with the strong emphasis on the word you in the text, it's almost like they're scoffing at the suggestion that Jesus, of all people, could provide what they were looking for. But Jesus wasn't interested in performing fancy stunts on demand. Jesus couldn't entrust himself to allegiance based on superficial performance, as Jesus pointed out on another occasion. They could read the signs in the sky about the weather well enough, but they they couldn't read the signs that Jesus was providing about who he was. The clearing of the temple was a sign that one greater than the temple was here, and they missed it. The irony is that they asked for the miraculous, but they were focused and what was it? And verse 21 draws that out. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. The destruction of the temple that Jesus is talking about is not the destruction of the temple of stones and mortar that's right before them that took 46 years to build. It is the destruction of his body through the death, his death on a cross. Raising it it again in three days takes place through his resurrection, as we know. There's rich irony in all this. The very people who were asking for a sign would be the means to which this sign came about. In putting Jesus to death, they unknowingly did away with the temple as a place for making sacrifices for sin. For in the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world The one true sacrifice for sins is made. No more sacrifice in the temple is needed for people to be able to come to God, to approach God. And the temple structure was kind of like a visual prophecy pointing to something greater than itself. It's pointing to an even greater meeting place between God and people. Jesus himself. By replacing the temple as a meeting place for God and the people, Jesus clears the way for all people everywhere to come to God. No matter where we are or where we live. And after he was raised from the dead, the disciples, verse 22, recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Sometimes I find it difficult to draw out points of application in a, in a passage when I'm preparing, and it sounds very good at application, but it's something, something I struggle with. And a key implication from this passage is that anyone can come to God through Jesus. Because Jesus clears the way for people to come to God, because Jesus clears away what hinders people from coming to God. Let's pause and consider how we can, sin- how we can hinder Ourselves from coming to God as well as hindering others when we gather together. We can hinder ourselves by feeling like we don't belong. That we don't belong to the dominant culture in a particular church congregation at the time. Well, social standing and popularity doesn't determine whether you can approach God through Jesus or not. Whatever your role or you'd have or don't have. ...doesn't determine whether you can approach God through Jesus. Whatever issues you're struggling with or wrestling with... ...doesn't determine whether you can approach God through Jesus. Let me encourage you that when you don't feel like... ...you're a part of the church culture... ...or you don't feel like you're part of society... ...or you're wrestling with different things... ...it doesn't mean that God is any less accessible... ...whether that's because of mental illness... ...or whatever the case is... ...family situation... God is not any less accessible. Don't lose sight that. We can also hinder ourselves by becoming superstitious about a physical place. We don't need to be in this building to worship God. And God made that very clear over the last few years when we had to meet in the hall. God wasn't any less accessible as he, over there than he was here. Sure, the atmosphere is very different in here. and It's a beautiful space to gather in this space here isn't any more holy than the, than the kitchen is. We approach God through Jesus. It's not limited to a space. We can pray to God in the everyday. Let's be careful of that trap as well. We can hinder ourselves by being distracted by the style of church service. Now sometimes there's structured things that we say or pray together. The, the, the liturgy Sometimes there's less of that, like today. Now We can hinder ourselves by switching off when it doesn't suit our style. Whether we have more formality and dress up a little bit for the 175th celebration, or we're more relaxed with all the kids in here during the school holidays and summer with shorts and t-shirts. We're still focusing on Jesus. Let's not hinder ourselves from worshipping God because this particular Sunday doesn't fit our style. Let's be careful of that. Now there are some among us today or listening online who hinder themselves by asking God for a sign. Something a little bit more miraculous so that they can believe in Jesus. And this passage today is basically saying that if if the resurrection of Jesus isn't enough for you, well, you're never going to believe. It's time to stop asking for signs and put your trust in Jesus. Talk to me or a trusted Christian friend after the service if you need to. Today is the day to stop asking for signs. It's time to start following Jesus. But we can also be a hindrance to others in our church service as we gather together. And certainly on a pragmatic level we can do that by something as simple by what time we get here. And naturally you all know there's a bit of a log jam at 9.30 as we try to squeeze in the door, take a seat. Now we could get away with that when there weren't too many of us. The congregation's growing now and it's becoming a bit of an issue. It's more crowded. People coming in late not only miss out on the introduction. They distract others from hearing it as well when they're trying to find a seat. And also getting here a little bit early gives you a chance to sit and focus and try to put some of the distractions out of your mind. And so when we do start at 9:30 you're ready. You're not coming in the door flustered because you've already had that time to prepare. Now, I understand having children complicates things. Uh, I I don't want to be legalistic about that kind of thing, but we're zealous for many things, but perhaps we're not so zealous about when it uh, comes to gathering together in a way that doesn't hinder us from coming to God. Sure, we can come to God anywhere, but we come to God together here to encourage and support one another, to challenge one another. Let's be zealous about thinking about how we approach coming together. To give you a taste of what coming early looks like, pun not intended, but our 8.30 start on Easter Sunday that we're having, you'll notice in the bulletin, will be a good trial run. We're going to have coffee and hot cross buns available before the service, Uh, and so it's an opportunity to relate together and invite people who might not be so comfortable coming to church, and then if people feel comfortable, they can come in to the building. So, maybe next week you can have a trial run, come here at 9 o'clock, then the 8.30 the week after, see how you go. I'll give, give you a week to practice. But let's try to avoid our, our log jams at 9.30 so that when we do gather, we're ready to focus, we're not distracted by so many things going on. But I think this passage is a challenge. It's a, it's a challenge about seeing a Jesus who we're not familiar with. It might, might make us uncomfortable, but seeing a Jesus who is zealous. For people to come to God and to have no distractions. So let's consider the way we do things, the way we approach things, the way we serve one another. And be zealous about not putting any hindrances in front of others to prevent them from coming to God. And let's be careful of the danger of putting them before ourselves as well. Now I'm going to lead us in prayer in a moment, thanking God for what is in this passage. But I'm going to pause in the middle of this prayer to give us a moment of silence. Silence is not something we have very common in our culture. But I want it to be a characteristic of what we have here when we gather together in church. So I'm going to give you a moment of silence to reflect on what God has been saying to us through his word this morning. And give you a chance to confess in your hearts where you need to. So I'm going to pray and thank God for a moment and then you'll you'll hear the pause. And so it'll be an extended pause, uh, and so I'll just give you that time to reflect and think about what God's saying. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that Jesus has cleared the way for all people everywhere to come to you. We thank you that in his zeal he was led to the cross and died in our place as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you that in Jesus the Christ, our Messiah, the one true sacrifice for sins was made. That in Christ Jesus, the meeting place between you and us is revealed. We thank you that meeting with you is not restricted to a building or a particular geographical place, but that we can come to you any place, any time through Jesus. We thank you for the freedom that brings to relate to you. We thank you that we can gather together to encourage and remind each other of that. We pause now to consider the ways we've put hindrances in our lives, that get in the way of us worshipping you, coming before you and serving you with our lives. We acknowledge before you the ways we've become hindrances to others coming before you and not being able to see Jesus clearly.